and I can't help but say it, but Tim, when you came to pray, we thought you looked a little bit like Wyatt Earp with that mustache. It's looking good. It's looking fantastic. So, wanted to get that on the record. Make sure you don't edit that out of the sermon. All right, Exodus chapter 20. This morning we resume our study uh, on the book of Exodus. Uh, Specifically right now we are looking at the response of God's people in section 4 of the book of Exodus. And we come to the Ten Commandments. I want to mention this morning the, the Ten Commandments are different from the Old Covenant. They have a correlation, but they're not the same thing. The covenant, in fact, starts with Abraham. God gives Abraham this covenant long before the law was ever given. And so what is the relationship between the two? Why does God's law matter? Why do the Ten Commandments matter? Well, first of all, the law reveals the nature of of God. It teaches us about Him. When God gives us the Ten Commandments, which we are about to study, it teaches us something about His character. It teaches us something about His righteousness, His holiness, which matters in reference to the covenant. We see that God, though He is a God of grace, though He's a God of mercy, though He is a God who comes to Abraham, for example, and makes a promise to Abraham, and God is faithful to His promise because God cannot break His word, God is still holy. And God will find a way to keep His promise within the context of those who follow His law. And so the law teaches us about the character of God. Secondly, the law teaches us about who we are supposed to be as a people. It was given to God's people. So we have regulations that should guide us, that should lead us, that separate us from the rest of the people of the world. One way of saying that is that our... Uh, Our laws are higher, holier. They are supreme. They come before and are superior to the laws of the land. Keep in mind that God created man in his own image. That's what the Bible teaches us. So if the law of God, if these Ten Commandments teach us about the character of God, They also teach us something about ourselves. That this very nature of God is impressed upon the hearts of us. That's why the Bible talks about our own consciences bearing witness against us. Consider, for example, on one hand, yeah, so we're born sinners, right? We're born with the the natural inclination to take what's not ours, to lie, to protect ourselves, sometimes even to hurt when we're mad. We want to hurt others. You don't have to teach a child to do those things. It's inherently in their nature because they are fallen. Simultaneously, there's also part of their little nature they know it's wrong. This is why when a little child at two or three years old steals something, They don't run home and show it off to mommy and daddy. 
And why not? I mean, they have increased their status. They've got what they wanted. They've taken what they felt like they needed. Surely mom and dad would be happy for them. But instinctively, there's something they just know differently. I'll never forget. I'm going to tell who it is in this story. I didn't tell it at the 1 o'clock. But Douglas Garton, some of you guys know Douglas Garton. When he's like three years old, he's in college now. Little Douglas was over at my house, and it was during Christmas. And he's over by the Christmas tree, and he's taking off the ornaments and putting them in his pocket. (laughs) Taking them off and putting them in his pocket. He was just going to take them home and put them on his tree. Because he liked the ornaments. He thought, those would look good on my tree. And so there's this simultaneously, right, there's this little tiny kid that's like, you know, I hate to use the word innocent, but it, that's a fair word for it, right? He's so young, he's innocent, doesn't know right from wrong, but instinctively he knows it's wrong enough he's hiding it, knows he shouldn't be taking it. And the point is that even at creation, God's law, it is like impressed upon our hearts. And so the law of God, it not only teaches us about the nature of God, It also teaches us about who we are supposed to be as a people. And third, the the relationship between the law of God and the covenant of God. The law shows us the boundaries that we have to walk in if we want to be blessed. So as I said, God's covenant's true. God's going to do what God said he's going to do. When God told Abraham he was going to make a great nation out of him and that his people would be blessed, it was done because God said so God had entered into the covenant it was it's a done deal God always does what God said he's going to do but as I said God will find a way to do that within the confines of those who keep his commands and so we are blessed when we walk according to God's law and when we don't walk according to God's law we forfeit those blessings. It doesn't mean God's covenant has somehow been, um, you know, that God's backed out on it. An example that I can give in, in human relationships is the example of the marriage. So the marriage relationship is designed by God. It works a certain way, and when it works a certain way, God has promised it will be blessed, it will be good, it will be favorable, it will be, be enjoyable. But what you'll find is it is possible for two people to be committed to the covenant. The covenant of marriage. And yet not be operating within the confines, the laws, the commands that God's given for marriage. And while that covenant might still exist, the marriage is lacking. Whether it's a husband that's a jerk. Whether it's a wife that's disengaged, whether it's, uh, you know, maybe you've got a marriage where an affair has actually occurred. And, and the couple chooses to stay in covenant. What you'll find that so long as they continue doing marriage outside of the boundaries that God has said for marriage to work, yes, they're in covenant, but it's not a blessing. It's a very difficult, hard thing. So it is in our relationship with God, folks. 
God's faithful to his word, and God's faithful to his people, and God's faithful to his covenant, but when we start walking outside of the boundaries that God has created for us, we find that all of a sudden the blessing and the joy and the the greatness of our walk with God, it's not so great anymore. It's hard. It's heavy. It's like, oh, this is difficult. It It almost feels like a burden. And so we see this, the importance of the relationship between the covenant of God and the law of God is that, number three, this, the law shows us the confines in which we have to walk to be blessed in the covenant. All right, I want to recap the three major reasons from last week. Actually, I just want to recap some, some reasons from last week on why the Ten Commandments are still bearing, and then we're going to get to them. Just in case you weren't here last week, I'm going to give you the three major ones. Number one, the Ten Commandments, and they alone, of all the laws which God gave to Israel, they alone were given to the entire people by God's voice. So only the Ten Commandments did everybody hear coming thundered from the mountain. The rest of all the law, Moses went up the mountain and God gave it to Moses up on the mountain. Moses comes back down off the mountain and he writes it on paper. The Law of God, the Ten Commandments, they alone were heard by all of Israel. Number two, they were also the only portion of the law that God wrote with his finger on the tablets of stone. And number three, though I did not mention this last week, this is a very significant fact that separates this portion of the law from all the rest. The Ten Commandments were the only portion of the law that was placed inside of the Ark of the Covenant. So when the temple was erected or when the tabernacle was erected, inside the Holy of Holies there was this mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. There was this this box inside of there. And inside of the box were placed some of the most holy articles of Israel's history. Inside of there, the only portion of the law that was placed, the Ten Commandments. All the civil laws, ceremonial laws were not put inside the Ark of the Covenant. And so clearly, the Ten Commandments, which you and I are about to study, are set apart from all the rest of the Old Testament law. So let's study them this morning together. Number one, first commandment, Exodus 20 and verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. That word before, it means other than, it means besides me. The command is telling us that there is no room for anyone else, anything else, as a God in our life. Now, it's interesting, and rightfully so, the the word gods is plural. There are a lot of gods, little g, that we allow to take place in our life, things that we think are going to give us purpose, give us peace, give us joy, give us meaning. If I get more of this, if only this thing would happen, if only this person would change, if only this career thing would, would, would work for me, then I could be happy, then I could find purpose, then I could have peace. There are all sorts of different things. Sometimes they're people, sometimes they're things, sometimes they're positions, sometimes they're possessions. 
But there are all sorts of different things that can become gods in our life. And God says you can have none of those. There's not a single one. He says, I am God. I must have the absolute authority in your life. God is to be supreme in your heart. How much this first commandment contains in it. There are so many things that we allow to really kind of grab a hold of this heart. A lot of people want to use God as a means to an end. Maybe they think, you know, they're, they're, they're hoping for something to change in their life in a relationship. Maybe they're hoping for something to change career-wise. Maybe they're hoping for something to change in their family. But, but, but the idea is, that's what I want more than anything. And so I'm going to use God to get that thing. What you will find is that when that's the heart of the matter, most of the time God makes sure you don't get that thing. And then you get mad and you get upset and you leave in your pity party and you're like, oh, what's the point of serving God? And God says, well, you're never really serving me to start with. You were using me. Very different. Very, very different. That thing was your God. That was the thing that you thought would bring you peace and happiness. And when you didn't get that thing, that's when you gave up. We have to caution ourselves against chasing anything other than God himself. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Even Christians, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, New Testament verse, even Christians, guys, we are warned, little children, keep yourselves from idols. We're warned of this. This isn't just like something to pagans out there that are bowing down and worshiping carved images. That's an extreme version of worshiping an idol. But there are a lot of idols that we as Christians must guard ourselves against. I don't think, I don't know if that's ever truer than it now than it has been before because we've got social media, we've got all sorts of things that are, especially this generation that's rising up that are, that are told, this is what makes you significant. This is what makes you important. We live in a, in a world where here in America especially, we are so blessed. We have everything we want, as much as we want. There's always a chance for more, 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 more. We are never satisfied. We are always chasing that next thing. And if there was ever a time that we, little children of God, must guard ourselves against idols, it's now, folks. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Now, this is taking idols to a whole other level. But there's a specific reason for this command. Let's look at it in its entirety. It's, it's verses 4 through 6, this particular, the second command. Here's what it says. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them. Or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So let's work backwards here with this commandment. God says this is ultimately something that, that 
will impact your children. And it's something that if you get right and you understand and you keep my commandments, it, you, you will see my love for you. And the commandment itself is ultimately about not worshiping, now listen carefully, things that you can see. It says what you're going to want to do as people, you're going to want to somehow, way, try to carve your idea of what the gods look like. You've got an idea in your mind of what you think I might look like up in heaven. Pagans have ideas of what they think their gods might look like, the ones that rule the earth, the ones that supposedly rule the under the earth, supposedly the gods that rule the oceans. And they would carve these things in their idea of what they would look like, and then they would bow down to them and worship them. Now, God's saying don't do that, but there's a deeper truth here, and that is this. And that is that God wants us to worship him in spirit and truth. That's the way that Jesus said it in the New Testament. We must guard ourselves against trying to create God in our image, in our idea of what he looks like. God is telling us that he is so vast beyond our ability to really comprehend it. So don't try to make a form for him. You know, I've thought to myself, what does God look like? I don't know about you, but probably all of us have at some point in time. I've thought about it. By the way, it doesn't say don't think about it, but it says don't get to the point where you're carving images that you assume God looks like. One of my favorite images of God comes from Revelation, and it, it talks about him being at his throne, and it's like it's thundering, and there's lightning, and there's colors coming from it, and it's this place of power. And in my mind, when I read that, I have an idea of what it looks like. Here's what I'm convinced. Even the idea that I've come up with pales in comparison to what it's really going to be like. Like if I was to be the greatest painter on earth and I was to take what's in my mind and try to paint it for you all and say, here's what God's going to be like in heaven, it would not even, it would pale in comparison to what it's really going to be like. And God's giving us that picture here in the second commandment when he's like, do not try to draw something or carve something or sculpt something that you think could in any way represent me. I am above it. I am beyond it. I am bigger than it. And if you want to worship me, God says, you've got to worship me in spirit and in truth. Number three. You shall not take the Lord your God, the name of the Lord your God, in vain. Exodus 20 and verse 7. This is the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is a very straightforward, fairly obvious command. But it teaches us something about the nature of God. His name is holy. And it is not to be used in vain. That's an interesting term. The word vain comes from, it's where we get our word vanity. And what it means literally is fleeting. It's like a, uh, something that's fleeting. 
is like a puff of smoke. You can see it for a little bit, but if you give it enough time, it vanishes. It is no more. That's what vanity is. It's something that looks great for a little while, but then it's gone. It is no more. It has no power to stay. It's empty, vain. God says, don't use my name that way. That's a, let me just say that that's in a whole other category than using God's name as a cuss word. Obviously, using God's name as a cuss word would fall into the category here of misusing his name. Obviously. We should never, there is never, ever, ever, ever any excuse for anybody, but especially the Christian, to use God's name as a cuss word. God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Can you imagine if someone used your name as a cuss word? Like every time they were really mad, they just shouted your name. Road rage. The whole world uses your name to scream things that just communicate, I am so mad and angry, I'm hating right now. I hate it. It's so crazy that, that somehow they choose to use God's. Mind-blowing to me. But using God's name in vain, when you understand the word vain, it is a much bigger category than using God's name as a cuss word. It means using it needlessly. It means using it where it's empty of its real meaning and, and that, it, that, that it does, you're not using it with its true force and honor. Reverently, do not take the Lord your God's name in vain. Hold it up. Treat it as holy. Consider when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray. So Jesus always used to go away and pray. And uh, his disciples eventually came to him. And they said, Lord, teach us, you know, how to pray like you do. And when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, the Bible, by the way, the Bible teaches us this, that Jesus teaches them how to pray, not what to pray. That's an interesting word change. So the how to pray is like a general kind of template. And there's principles within what he prays that I think should be part of our prayer life. But this isn't necessarily a prayer that's supposed to be repeated word for word every day. I'm not going to say that's wrong. I'm just going to say Jesus wasn't telling his disciples, repeat this every day of your life. He was teaching them, this is how you pray. With that in mind, Look what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Note the first thing that Jesus says. Consider prayer. In prayer, we're asking God to do something. Like we're going to God to talk to God about doing something. And Jesus says, 
This is how you do it. Pray like this. The first thing that should be on your mind, the first thing that should come out of your mouth is this desire to see God's name hollowed, treated as holy, lifted up. The importance of respecting the name of God It's really tied to our understanding of his character and who he is and how holy he is that even his name. It's not just him that we are to treat with great respect and holiness. Even his very name, the way that it comes off of our lips, needs to be hollowed. Number four, the fourth commandment is to keep the Sabbath holy. We find it in verses 8 through 11. Let's look at it together, all three verses. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Two things here. First, that man should work six days. God worked six days and then rested one. We see that man is created to work six days. Now, work means especially in the context of the Bible here, quite more literally, just physical work. It doesn't mean clocking in at 8 a.m. and clocking out at 5 p.m. The Bible's not saying six days a week you should go to your place of employment. It's saying that six days a week we should work. We should be busy. We should be about something. We should be doing something not sitting around, doing nothing, being lazy. You will find that not always, but almost always, almost always in the Word of God, when God goes to find a man, He finds the man in His work. It's an interesting study to look at, like, when did Jesus call the disciples? Well, Matthew's at the tax collector booth. Peter, James, John, Andrew, they're out throwing nets. They're fishing. The Lord comes to people in their work. And in this commandment, where we're going to get to, like, keep the Sabbath holy and use it as a day of rest, it's interesting. We are pointed out that we are to work six days. We're pointed out that God worked for six days before he rested on the seventh. In the New Testament, there's a premium put on work within the body of Christ. Look what 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says about it. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's strong. You don't want to work? You can starve. Work. Put in the work. If you want to eat, then work. This, this is a biblical principle about the mindset and heart and attitude of God's people. We are not lazy. We do not expect to sit around 
and do nothing, and God just blesses us and gives us stuff. We are to work. Now, the second part of this commandment, the major part, and I would argue the most important, is the day itself, the Sabbath day that we are keeping holy. And notice the Sabbath day is a day of rest. Work calls for rest. And then once you're rested, rest calls for work. We go back and forth. But for most of us, in this incredibly busy culture, it's my observation that of all the commandments most neglected in the church, it's probably this one. We don't keep the Sabbath holy. Now, what is the Sabbath? It's a day of rest. It's important to understand when you look at the study of the Sabbath in the Old Testament, it is not the seventh day. It's not Saturday. The Sabbath is the day that follows six days of work. The Sabbath is a day of rest. What God was teaching was that we need a day of rest. Not necessarily what day of the week, it doesn't say. It's not Saturday, it's not Sunday, it's not Tuesdays. In fact, in the Old Testament, it fell weekly on Saturday, but they had Sabbaths other than Saturday. They would have Sabbaths as part of their feasts. Sometimes the Sabbath would fall on a Thursday. Like, what made it a Sabbath was that it was a day of rest. And this is something we cannot miss. Nowhere does the Bible ever teach us that the Sabbath is a day of worship. There's nothing wrong with worshiping on the Sabbath. But what makes it the Sabbath is not that it's a day of worship. What literally makes it the Sabbath is it's a day of rest. And historically, sometimes we get that wrong in the church. Even in good, God-fearing, God-honoring people. I've been part of churches. I will confess that even early on in our initial setup of, of the well, used to be called Crossway, that our setup wasn't real conducive to rest. We were going to have church at 9 a.m. We we're going to learn something then. And then we we're going to have church at 10.30. And we we're going to learn something then. And then you're going to get a two-hour two break for lunch. And then you're going to come back. And we're going to have church at 6 o'clock. And all day long, worship, 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 church, 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 church. Learn, 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 learn. And then go home and go to bed and get up and go to work tomorrow. It wasn't rest. It wasn't about rest. We couldn't give a rip less about rest. It was about worship. Church, 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 service, 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 more, 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 more. Now here's the point. Do not miss it. This is part of the Ten Commandments. And as I feel like I have demonstrated already, the Ten Commandments still stand. And the Sabbath still matters. All the other laws surrounding the Sabbath, right, like, not keeping the Sabbath used to be punishable by death. That wasn't given right here. That wasn't given on the Ten Commandments. That was added later to the civil and ceremonial laws 
that only applied to Israel. But the keeping of the Sabbath and keeping it holy and treating it as a day of rest, it still stands, folks. And I'll tell you, for me, this, this one commandment has been a source of problem in my life for the last year. As I look myself in the mirror and I'm honest about my life, I recognize that Sunday for me is not a day of rest. That I used to use Sundays for meetings. There were days regularly on Sundays because I would use Sundays for meetings where I would do church as I do now, literally here at 8.30 to 12.30. I'd run and eat. We'd have an appointment at 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, and then I'd do life group at 6. Not a day of rest, huh? Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. The problem is if I don't take the next day off. Or if I don't use Thursday, like, here's the the reality. The Sabbath is a day of rest, and we need it. Look what Jesus said about the Sabbath in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was made for you. You need it. I mean, it was made for you to observe and obey, but you actually need it. You will find that when you keep the Sabbath and you keep it holy and you have a day in your life every week where you rest from work and you're not physically doing things, you're not plowing the field, you're not, you, you're not doing physical work, you're, you're not busy, but you are resting with, with a mind, intentional mind to rest, what you'll find is that you've got better physical, mental, spiritual, emotional health. And when we just go, 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 we're really telling God, Lord, I don't trust that somehow you can take care of everything that needs done in the next six days of my life. Like, you need a little extra help. I'm going to have to work seven days a week. And God says, no, you need to stop. And you need to rest, and you need to trust me just like you do with your tithe. You believe that when you give me 10% of all that I give you, that with that remaining 90%, I will take care of everything I need to take care of in your life. You need to do the same thing with your time, child. You need to trust that when you take a day off and rest, focus on me throughout the day, but understand it's a day of rest. That I'll bless the next six days more than you can do 14 in a row. Now this is a command, folks. This is something that's important that each of us have to be honest enough to be like, so am I intentional about taking rest in my life? Number five, honor your father and mother. Exodus 20, 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that your Lord, your God, is giving you. So I I just want to talk about the word honor. I think that may be the most important word in this commandment so that we understand how to apply it. It does not say to love. It does not say to appreciate. It does not say to think highly of um, or to um, respect all things that hopefully you do with your parents. But occasionally... In rare cases, 
And this is who I want to talk to, those who are in the rare cases. Parent, sometimes parents are not very respectable. Sometimes moms and dads do bad things to their sons and daughters. Sometimes dads walk out on their family. And I mean, I, I know people who don't even know who their real biological father is. And so, it's under, understand God would never give us a command we cannot keep. To honor, what it means is to see a person in a place of superiority. It is to recognize where this person sits, if you will, in a position to me. And the very fact that these, my father and my mother gave me life is enough that I should honor them for who they are. I can illustrate this point of honor in a way that, especially in this climate of political culture that we're in, I can illustrate this point of honor easier using political people. So, let's assume, just assume that you you don't have great respect for our president. And you may think he's the greatest president ever. I'm just saying let's assume. Let's assume that you think that he's failing on all sorts of different levels. If that man were to walk through here, we should still honor him as the president of the United States of America. And we would be wrong to hurl insults and to pick up tomatoes and start throwing them. Regardless of what you think about it, I'm just making a point. That honor is something we give to a person because we recognize their position. And we are told to honor our father and our mother. That's a command, folks. And yes, you can honor your father and mother even... Things aren't great, even if there's issues within that relationship. You do not get some free pass to not honor your father and your mother because you can say, well, my father or mother was not very nice or did this or did that. So, this is an important command. And Obviously, it's one that we are seeing break down all over the, the nation, all over the world. The, the absolute dishonor, lack of honor for, for mother and father. It's, uh, when I think about it, this is what Joplin thinks, and hopefully Joplin's wrong. But when I think about it, I feel like we've grown beyond the place. Uh, it's spiraled out of control beyond the place of it ever being repaired the world that we're in, the, the chaos, the way that people treat parents generally, the, the lack of authority, uh, the lack of respect for authority. I think about we must be in the time that God spoke about when, when he told us that he would send a strong delusion on the world. I feel like that we might be there. And listen, if God sends it, I don't care how much we try to stop it, it's the delusion's coming. And we look at the delusion. We, 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 you see it everywhere. It's, it's just such crazy stuff we're seeing. And so 
I look at the reality of the world that we're in, and I'm like, it's not going to change. So why say anything about it? Because while we might not change the world, I hope to God that we can help change a few families. While we might not be able to save the 7 billion people that live on this planet, I hope to God we can save a handful of them. And while we might not be able to get children to show honor to their parents worldwide, I hope to God and I pray that we can get children to show honor to their parents right here at the Well Worship Center. And as parents, we have to understand it's our responsibility to teach it and require it. It's our job. And if you don't have your children honor you, you are allowing them not only to sin against you, but to break one of God's holy laws and to sin against God. Now, I'm not telling anybody here to rule with an iron fist. But what I am saying is, it is a commandment from God Almighty that has not ceased that we are to honor our mother and our father. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, nearly 2,000 years ago, the day that we live in, was told it would come. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, and disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful, unholy. It was told this day would come when when the general term that applied to the general population is they would be disobedient to their parents. We are in it now, folks. But God's law has not changed. Honor your father and your mother. Number six, you shall not murder. This is a simple, short command. You shall not murder. Um, The ESV, the version that we're reading here, does a good job translating the word murder. Some of the older translations, like your King James Version, use the word kill. The word translated into English here as kill or murder is literally the word spelled R-S-H. There's no vowel in it. And I tried to figure out how to pronounce it yesterday. I couldn't. I wasn't sure. I spent five minutes. I'm like, this is a stupid waste of time. Just tell the people how the word is spelled. If you can pronounce it, good for you. R-S-H. And what it literally means is to slay another person out of malice. It's the mindset and the attitude of the heart that says, I get to decide, you die. And it's to take the life of another human being because I believe I have the righteous choice to make that decision. It's murdering a person. God says, do not do it. And I want to quickly deal with why that word matters because it's not the same word of Kill, which is a great big word. If it, the word kill could encompass step, stepping on a spider. In fact, the word kill does encompass stepping on a spider. The word kill could encompass hunting. It's an important word, especially for those who have ever had to take human life 
on the battlefield or for any other justified reason. It falls outside of this word R-S-H in the Ten Commandments. The Bible clearly teaches us that there are times that um, people die in war, that people, you know, the death penalty, for example. God will later give the death penalty for a couple of crimes against his law. Somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to fulfill the death penalty. And so there are times that taking human life is justified. And God teaches us that it is the agency of the human government that is ultimately responsible for making that decision. I'm going to show it to you in Romans 13 in just a moment. That while governments can be wrong and governments can be ran by very wrong people, God created this design of human government to ultimately make sure we don't run into anarchy and utter chaos. Every man for himself. And in those situations, sometimes war is sanctioned. God himself sanctioned certain wars after giving this command, which would require that people, Israelite men, followers of God, would have to go off to war. David was a man of war. David had mighty men of war who were actually great men of God who had to, in the course of battle, take another human life. That is not what this command is about. This is about thinking that you are God and you get to decide when you're angry with somebody that you're going to take their life, you're going to slay them out of malice. I want to go to Romans chapter 13 because it is a New Testament passage that deals with the church's response towards governments. And it deals with the death penalty. Verses 1 through 4, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that every person in a place of authority was selected by the hand of God. This doesn't necessarily mean, for example, that God selected Donald Trump or Joe Biden or anybody else to be the President of the United States, but that the positions that these people fill are part of God's divine decisions on how the earth is to be governed. And because these people are in these positions, we are to respect their authority. Let's read on. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So God says within the government, there are those who bear the sword. Now this is a term, a general term that deals with bringing punishment for wrongdoing. But the term bear the sword encompasses death. 
That's why the word sword is used. And so we see that even within true biblical theology, there is a time and place. And that it's ultimately, it's all that we have right there, but ultimately we see it's the governments that put those decisions at time and place of, of when is it necessary for whatever the reason may be, when is it necessary that we either go to war, understanding human life is going to have to be taken. When is it necessary that we apply the death penalty for certain crimes that have taken place, knowing that this means the human life of the perpetrator is going to be taken? This falls into a whole different category from the word R-S-H, which means to murder. And I just want to share that. I felt like I wanted to spend some time on that this morning because I've had, you know, a lot of times over the years. Sometimes people that just don't want to believe the Bible, sometimes people that are just looking to cause problems, that want to point to, you know, you guys are Christians and you're, you know, supportive of war or anything of that nature. And then occasionally I've actually ran into people that have actually been in this situation and that have, that have grappled with, you know, what's, where am I with God? So I think it's important that we as a church understand this sixth commandment, what it means, and the difference between sanctioned killing um, rightfully. All right, number seven, you shall not commit adultery. This one is also a short quick statement. Nothing other than verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. This obviously respects the marriage relationship. It teaches us something about the sacredness of the marriage relationship that God would address it in the Ten Commandments. Marriage is the highest and most sacred of all human relationships. God says you shall not commit adultery. Verse 8, or excuse me, verse 8, number 8, verse 15, you shall not steal. This is also a quick commandment where God doesn't add anything to it. He just says, you shall not steal. The design of this commandment is to command honesty in all of our dealings with everyone. Romans 13, 8 tells us to owe nothing to anyone. This encompasses more than just taking, like me breaking into your house and taking something that I know I shouldn't take. There are things that we owe each other. Honor, respect, love. There are things we literally owe each other. That when we have our hearts wrong, when our mind's not straight, we're willing to withhold. We're willing to hold back and not give what we are to give. We need to be honest and deal with integrity with everybody that we come in contact with. You shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This particular um, commandment is sometimes quoted as you shall not lie. I find it interesting and important that God is more specific here than just you shall not lie. Yes, you shall not lie. Yes, the Bible teaches that all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. But in the Ten Commandments, God says you shall not bear false witness against 
your neighbor. That's the actual commandment. To bear false witness means that I'm going to use my um, cred to tell you something false about another person. That's bearing false witness. To say that you're a witness to something means that you know something about a person. So to bear false witness is to, to, to on one hand, claim I know something about a person, and then on the other hand, to lie about what you say you know. I find it really interesting that God says the way you talk about everybody else matters enough to Him, matters enough to God, that it's going to be listed in the Ten Commandments. Would you agree that The gossip about people is something that we all tend to get pulled into pretty frequently. I preached a sermon many months ago on the, 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 the scripture that says to speak evil of no one. Preach a whole sermon on that. Speak evil of no one. In the Bible, the context of neighbor, Jesus teaches this in the story of the Good Samaritan when Jesus is literally asked, so who's my neighbor? And he gives the story of the Good Samaritan. In the Bible, the concept of neighbor is ultimately whoever's closest to me. Like, you're my neighbor, you're my neighbor, you're my neighbor, you're my neighbor, you're my neighbor. God says, don't speak evil, don't, don't bear false witness against anybody. You know, sometimes we can bear false witness by saying something negative about a person that's not true. I think most of the time that's how it happens. We get involved in a little gossip circle. We're like, oh, I know this, I know that, I know that. And really you don't know, but you're bearing false witness. Now, this is another important truth, folks. Sometimes we bear false witness about our friends. We know good and well they ain't quite all up and up like we want everybody to think they are, but we're going to... We're going to lie for him. I'm going to tell you, no, I, I, know, I know that person. He is a good, upstanding, great man of God. When you know good and well the truth, he's not. And when that's the case, I'm not saying that you, you bear everybody's secrets. I'm just saying don't lie about it. You don't have to, you, you don't, don't bear false witness in any way about anybody. Don't mislead people about who someone else is. That's what God's saying. It's important that we use our mouths to speak only what is true. And then finally, the final of the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet. And in this commandment, God goes on and gives several examples. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. I like that final, or anything. That's, that's the clear point that's being made when he's naming all of the things that you might look, especially in this day of time, where you might look over the fence at your neighbor, and pretty much anything that you might see over there, God says, don't covet that. Now, the Tenth Commandment is a very interesting commandment because it demonstrates that this is the divine law of God. Let me explain. This is the only 
rule amongst how we are to treat each other that there's no way to enforce. There has never been a government on the planet that's been able to write into their laws, you cannot covet, which means to desire. Don't desire your neighbor's stuff. How do you enforce that? How do you even prove that somebody is desiring their neighbor's possessions? How do you even prove what's going on in the heart? The obvious answer is you can't. But the Bible teaches us that we, man, we look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And so we finish up this divine set of commandments with the command that, only God Himself could possibly know if we're guilty of. And it demonstrates that these laws right here, folks, these these aren't just laws between us. These are divine laws between each of us individually and our Creator. This tenth command, do not covet, it simply means don't want what everybody else has. God's saying stop looking around at everybody else and wishing you had what everybody else has. The, the ultimate uh, problem with this particular sin is that it's about being dissatisfied. It's like, I'm not happy with what I have. I need what he has. I need or want what she has, and then I can be happy. And, and God is telling us, no, don't do that. The Bible teaches us that God is a God who opens doors that no man can shut. That He shuts doors that no man can open. The Bible teaches us that God has promised not to give everything to us that we want, but that He is the God who supplies all of our needs. And so when we start coveting, what we're really saying is, God, I'm not satisfied with you. I'm not satisfied with your plan for my life. I don't have patience to wait on your will or or your plans. I don't have patience for any of that. I want what I want now. It's almost like we're the prodigal son that says to the father, like, I I I don't want you. I really just want your stuff. I just want the blessings. I don't want to wait for it. I want it all now, now, now. It's me, me, me. And God says, don't do that. Be satisfied with where you are. And stop looking around at what everybody else has, being jealous of what everybody else has, and wanting what they have. This particular um, command, it reminds me of Peter. Peter was walking with Jesus after Jesus had risen from the dead. um, And Jesus appears to Peter and a handful of the other disciples on the shore, and if you know the story, Peter jumps out of the boat, and he swims to Jesus, and uh, Jesus has a discussion with John about some things, and then Jesus is talking to Peter, and he's telling Peter basically his plan for Peter's life, and Peter, classic, like many of us, like, well, but what about John? What are you going to do with him? Like, I I heard what you kind of said back there. And you know what Jesus' answer was? Uh, What's that have to do with you? 
Whatever I do with John, that's between me and John. That's, that has nothing to do with you, Peter. Nothing at all. You, you worry about you. And the spirit of covetousness kind of falls in that same vein where it's like, I, I want my life to look like everybody else's. I don't want anyone else to get anything that I don't have. I want us all to have, you know, if, if we're all going to have it, then I need to make sure that I do. And God says, stop it. Stop, 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 stop looking at what everybody else has. Quit it. And you be satisfied with my will for your life. You be satisfied with what I've given you. You trust that I'm a good God that loves you, that you are my son, that you are my daughter, and I am a good father. And what type of father would not give good gifts to his children that ask for them? So be satisfied with where you are and know that I'm good and know that I love you and know that I'm taking care of you and quit looking at all your brothers and sisters and wishing you had what they had. Stop it. This is an attitude of the heart that only God can know. We're going to close this morning. I'm not going to ask our worship team to come, guys. I've ran a little bit long. We're going to close. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. But I want to challenge you guys to do something this week on the Ten Commandments. I Listen, for me, the fourth commandment has been a difficult one for me to look myself in the mirror with. Honor the Sabbath. Remember it. Do not forget it. And keep it holy for the Sabbath is to be a day of rest. When Joplin Emerson takes God's divine law, these Ten Commandments, and I look them straight, I see a glaring place in my life that I've got to get serious about the fourth commandment. And my guess is that all of us, if, if we will look at God's commandments honestly, you might have idols in your life. You might have something else going on, a, a tongue that's constantly gossiping and bearing false witness. You, know, you, you might, whatever it might be. But I bet most of us, we can go down there and there's somewhere that that, that finger can just go, this one right here. This is an area in my life like I really, I just need to work on. And here's the thing, God knows it and I know it. And I, and I want to challenge us, folks, because the law of God is beautiful. The law of God gives us the confines in which we need to walk to really experience His greatest blessings. This is why we should love them and long for them. I want to challenge us as individuals. I want to challenge you this week. 17 verses, folks. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. 17 verses. Open it up. Read it for yourself this week. And just be honest with God. God, what's the, what's the one thing? Maybe there's a couple, but what's the one thing in here? You and I both know it's time for me to repent of this thing and get back to loving you with all my heart, all my strength, all my soul. Get back to to doing this thing in my life. Get back to keeping the Sabbath. Get back to putting a guard over my mouth and, and not using my tongue to slander others. What is the one thing in your life that you need to really identify and repent of this week and start following the Lord?